You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner in English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 194, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Michael's Mission, Revealing the Essential Secrets of Human Nature, Twelve Lectures, translated by Johanna Collis. This is Lecture 6, given in Dornach on the 30th of November, 1919. In our descriptions over the last few days, you have seen how, for a thorough understanding of the human being, it is necessary to enter into the matter of how the human being is organized, especially as regards the profound difference between the human head organization and what we might call the organization of the other parts. Of course, you know that the rest of the human being is also subdivided in a way which yields a division into three parts. But initially it is the differentiation between the head part and the rest of the organization. From the point of view of spiritual science, we speak about the human being as consisting of the head part of his nature and the rest of his nature. This division into the head and the rest amounts initially rather more to an image, a revelation created by nature of the soul aspect and the spiritual aspect. The position of the human being within the whole of earthly human evolution can only be properly understood if one takes into account the difference between the position of the head organization and the position of the other parts of the organization. If we remain for the moment with the post-Atlantean evolution of humanity, we see that the head organization is bound up with the human being's life of thinking and that this reaches very far back into that post-Atlantean period. Looking back to the time immediately following the great Atlantean catastrophe, the 6th, 7th or 8th millennium before Christ, we arrive in regions belonging to the civilized world of that time where the soul mood of humanity was such that it can scarcely be compared with that of our own time. What human beings in those times had in their consciousness What characterized their conception of the world can scarcely be compared with the way we today characterize the world on the basis of our sense perceptions and our thoughts. In my book titled Occult Science, Readers Aside, also known as an outline of esoteric science and the Readers Aside, I termed this culture, which reaches back so far into the past, the primeval Indian culture in the way in which the human organization of those times was linked primarily with the head, those ancient cultures differed to such a degree from our own that they entirely lacked our way of reckoning with both space and time. There was something like an overview of immeasurable widths of space, and it was as though various moments in time were viewed one within the other. 
the strong emphasis on space and time, now present in our concept of the world, did not exist in those ancient days. The first inklings of this began in the fifth or fourth millennium, the period we describe as that of ancient Persia. The whole mood of the life of soul in those times can still, however, scarcely be compared with the mood of the human soul and of the world which exists now in our own time. In those ancient days, human beings were constantly endeavoring to interpret everything in terms of a comparison between brightness and luminosity on the one hand and darkness and gloom on the other. The abstractions with which we live today were still entirely unfamiliar to those ancient peoples on the earth. They still possessed something of a universal view, an awareness of how everything visible is permeated with light or else shrouded in darkness. This was also their way of looking at the world order. A person who was well-meaning and kind was experienced as being light, as being bright, whereas someone who was distrustful or selfish was felt to be dark. A person's moral individuality was seen as surrounding him as an aura. And if one had spoken to a person during that ancient Persian age about what we now call the natural order, he would not have understood anything at all. In his world of light and shade, there was no such thing as what we now know as a natural order. For him the world consisted of light and shade, and For example, with reference to sounds and notes, certain nuances were found to be bright while others were dark and shadowy. For him the world consisted of light and shade. And those things which found expression in this lightness and darkness were to him spiritual and also natural forces. So, to distinguish between what might be either natural necessity or human freedom would have seemed utter madness to him. For him, the duality of human caprice and natural necessity did not exist. In his view, everything could be encompassed within a spiritual-physical unity. To draw a picture for you, the meaning of which will become apparent in what follows, which characterizes that ancient Persian worldview, I would have to depict a line which somehow shows how the world serpent The symbol of the all uniformly encompasses the view of humanity. Plate 10. Readers aside, plate 10 is essentially uh, an ellipse. End of readers aside. And then, approximately two millennia after that soul mood had existed, there came the time of which we still see the after echoes in the Chaldean worldview, in the Egyptian worldview and in a specific form of a worldview, the distant echo of which has been preserved for us in the Old Testament. Here something now appears which is a little closer to our present worldview. A nuance of a kind of natural necessity now appears in the ideas of humanity. But this natural necessity is still nowhere near what we might call a mechanical or even only a living natural order. In that age, natural events are still bound up with the will of the gods, with divine providence. 
providence and natural events are still one and the same. When a human being moved his hand, he knew that it was the divine in him which moved his hand or his arm. If a tree was swaying in the wind, looking at that swaying tree was no different from looking at his moving arm. He saw the same divine power as providence in his own movements and in the movements of the tree. There was, however, now a differentiation between the God without and the God within. Although the God in nature and the God in man were still conceived of as being one and the same. It was clear in that period that there was something in the human being in which the providence outside in nature and the providence within the human being came into contact with one another. This was what the process of breathing was felt to be. One said that when the tree sways, that is the external God. And when I move my arm, that is the internal God. When I breathe in the air, work on it inside myself and then expel it again, it is the external God who enters into me and then departs again. This was how the same godly element was felt to be outside and inside, at one and the same time outside and inside. One said to oneself, As a being who breathes, I am both a being of nature and myself. Having shown you my characterization of the ancient Persian worldview with this line, the previous drawing, a reader's aside, of an ellipse, I will now characterize the third age with this line, bracket, a lemniscate is drawn inside the oval, plate 10. And this line demonstrates the world of nature on the one hand and the world of human beings on the other, and it crosses over at a certain point in the process of breathing. Things change again in the fourth period, the Greco-Roman age. Here humanity is tersely confronted with the contrast between outside and inside, between natural existence and human existence. Here the human being begins to feel the contradistinction between himself and nature. So if I wanted to characterize how the human being begins to feel in the Greek age, I would have to draw it like this. See plate 10. On the one side he feels what is external and on the other what is internal. And there is no longer the crossover point between the two. Readers aside, I'll try to describe this. We have the whole ellipse. Inside it we have the lemniscate. And inside each of the parts of the lemniscate we have like a teardrop uh, that's slightly shaded. And those are the two parts he's talking about here, I believe. That uh, there's no crossover point anymore. End of readers aside. That which the human being shares with nature remains in a certain sense outside his consciousness. It leaves his consciousness. In the yoga culture of India, efforts are made to bring it back inside. That is why the Indian yoga culture represents an atavistic return to former developmental stages of humanity. It endeavors to bring the breathing process back into consciousness because, in the third age, it was natural to feel oneself both inside it and outside it. The fourth age begins in the eighth pre-Christian century. That is when those late Indian 
yoga exercises commenced, which sought to bring back atavistically what one had possessed earlier on, especially in the Indian culture, but which had, meanwhile, been lost. Well, so awareness of the breathing process was lost. The question is, why did the Indian yoga culture try to regain it? What did people think they would achieve by doing so? The answer is that one wanted to reach a true understanding of the external world. During the third cultural age, the breathing process was understood in such a way that through it one understood something inwardly, which was at the same time something external. This is now something which must be achieved in a different way. The fourth age ended in the year 1413, or indeed in the middle of the 15th century. So we are today living in the aftermath of its culture, which did indeed bring something of a duality into the soul mood of human beings. Through our head organization, we have an incomplete view of nature, of what we call the external world. And through our internal organization, the rest of our organization, we have an incomplete knowledge of our self. Bracket, two separate shapes are drawn. See plate 10, right-hand side, close bracket. Something is missing between these two. Something in which we would discern a process in the world and a process belonging to our self. So now it is a matter of regaining, of consciously regaining that which has been lost. That is to say, we must comprehend anew something which belongs both to the external world and to what is internal, something which once again overlaps. It is for this that the fifth post-Atlantean epoch must strive. It must be the aim of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch to find once more something which is within the human being, wherein at the same time an external process runs its course. You will remember that I have already hinted at this important fact, namely in my last essay titled Culture, Law and Economics, entitled The Renewal of the Social Organism, where I firstly dealt with the significance of these things for our social life, but then also indicated clearly that something must be found wherein the human being takes hold of something within himself in which he also recognizes a process of the external world. Readers aside, the book titled The Renewal of the Social Organism is also on this site. End of readers aside. As present-day human beings, we cannot achieve this by harking back, for example, to the yoga culture that belongs to the past. For as you know, the breathing process itself has changed. Of course, this cannot be clinically proven. Nevertheless, the human breathing process has been different since the third post-Atlantean cultural period. Roughly speaking, one could say, during the third post-Atlantean cultural period, the human being breathed soul. Now, he breathes air. It is not only our ideas which have become materialistic. Reality itself has lost its soul. I would ask you, please, not to regard what I am now about to say as something unimportant. Consider the significance of the fact 
that the reality in which humanity lives has itself changed to the extent that the very air we breathe is different from what it was four millennia ago. It is not only the consciousness of human beings which has changed, no indeed. In those times there was soul in the earth's atmosphere. The air was the soul. This is not what it is today, or perhaps one should say it is still so but in a different way. The spiritual beings of elemental nature, about which I spoke yesterday, do enter into the air once more, and then one can breathe them by practicing yoga breathing. But that which could be achieved 3,000 years ago through normal breathing is not something which can be brought back artificially. That this is possible is the great illusion of people in the Orient. What I am saying now is most certainly a proper description of reality. The soul element of the air belonging to human beings is no longer there. That is why those beings, those anti-Mikael beings about whom I spoke yesterday, enter into the air and through the air into human beings. And this is how they find their way into humanity as I described yesterday. We can only drive them out if we replace yoga practices with what is correct for today. We must realize that it is necessary for us to strive for what is correct. And we can only strive for what is correct by becoming aware of a far more refined connection of the human being to the external world, thus enabling something to take place in connection with our ether body, which can enter increasingly into our consciousness in a similar way to the breathing process. In the process of breathing, we inhale fresh air containing oxygen and exhale useless carbon dioxide air. And a similar process exists in all our processes of sense perception. Imagine you are seeing something. Let's take a drastic example. You are watching a flame. As you do this, something comes about which is comparable with, but far more refined, than inhaling air. Now, you close your eyes. You can do something similar with any of your senses. And there you have an after-image of the flame which gradually changes, just as Goethe says, it fades. Apart from the purely physiological aspect, the human ether body is very much involved in this process of taking in an impression of light and the subsequent fading away of the impression. And this process involves something exceedingly important. In it now is the soul element, which three millennia ago was inhaled and exhaled together with the air. We must learn to comprehend similarly how the process of sense perception is filled with the soul element in the way that occurred 3,000 years ago in the case of the breathing process. This is linked with something else, namely that one can describe the human being as having lived in a kind of culture of the night three millennia ago. Yahweh made himself known through his prophets via nighttime dreams. 
Now, however, we must fashion the fine details of our intercourse with the world in a way which ensures that our perceptions are not only sensual but also spiritual. We must ensure that with every beam of light, with every note or sound, with every sensation of temperature, as well as in the way these fade away again, we enter into an intercourse with the world which is of the soul. And this intercourse through the soul must become something meaningful for us. It is also possible for us to support ourselves in a way which will enable this to come about. I have described to you how the mystery of Golgotha came about in the fourth post-Atlantean period, which, when we calculate this exactly, see plate 10, began with the year 747 before Christ and ended with the year 1413. The mystery of Golgotha took place in the first third of that period. However, it was the lingering resonances of the old way of thinking, of the old culture, which initially enabled human beings to comprehend the mystery of Golgotha. The manner in which the mystery of Golgotha is comprehended must become utterly renewed. The old way of comprehending the mystery of Golgotha is spent. It is no longer capable of coping with the mystery of Golgotha. But meanwhile many endeavors which have been undertaken to render human thinking capable of comprehending the mystery of Golgotha have proved inadequate to reach up to the mystery of Golgotha. You see, all things which happen externally in material circumstances also have their spiritual and soul aspect. And all things which happen in the spirit and soul also have their physical material side. The fact that the earth's air has become devoid of soul so that human beings no longer inhale what was originally air filled with soul has had a significant spiritual effect on the evolution of humanity. By taking into himself the soul through inhaling the living soul to which he had originally been akin, as we read at the beginning of the Old Testament, and God breathed into the human being the breath as the living soul, the human being had a certain potential. He received an awareness of the pre-existence of the soul element, of the soul's existence, before descending in his physical body through birth or through conception. And in the same degree as the breathing process ceased to be ensouled, so did the human being lose his awareness of a previous existence of the soul element. Indeed, even when Aristotle appeared on the scene, in this fourth post-Atlantean period, it was not possible any longer for the human capacity of comprehension to penetrate the mystery of the pre-existence of the soul. There was no longer any possibility for this. The curious historical fact is that the greatest event enters into earthly evolution, the Christ event, and yet humanity first has to increase in maturity before becoming capable of comprehending it. At first, with what remains of their primeval powers of comprehension, human beings are still able to catch hold of what rays out from the mystery of Golgotha. But then, 
their capacity for comprehension fades, and dogma leads them ever further away from the mystery of Golgotha. The Church banishes belief in pre-existence, not because pre-existence cannot be reconciled with the mystery of Golgotha, but because the human capacity of comprehension, owing to the air having become void of the soul element, loses its ability to bring the force of consciousness into the soul, the consciousness of pre-existence. Pre-existence vanishes from whatever is left of head consciousness. When we regain the soul element in our sense impressions, then we shall once more have a crossover point, see plate 10, and in that point we shall be able to grasp hold of human will as it streams upward out of the third layer of consciousness in the way I told you the other day. And at the same time we shall also have something which is subjective and objective, which is what Goethe so greatly craved. And then we shall again also have the possibility of grasping, at first delicately, what is so remarkable about this sense process of the human being over against the external world. The idea that the external world merely has an effect on us and that we merely react to this is really rather unsubtle. All that stuff amounts to no more than a rough idea. In reality, what happens is that a soul process goes from the outside to the inside, where it is then taken hold of by the profoundly unconscious inner soul process in such a way that the two processes interact. World thoughts work their way into us from the outside, and human will works outward from within. And at this crossing point, the human will and the world thoughts cross over, just as in breathing what was objective used to cross over with what was subjective. We must learn to feel how our will works through our eyes and how indeed the activity of the senses quietly mingles with the passivity which enables world thoughts to cross over with human will. It is this new yoga will which we must develop. In this way, something will be imparted to us, something resembling what was imparted to the human being through the breathing process three millennia ago. Our comprehension must become far more imbued with soul, far more imbued with spirit. These are the things for which Goethe was seeking in his worldview. He wanted to recognize the pure phenomenon. He called it the Ur-phenomenon in which he included solely what works on the human being from the outside, untainted by the luciferic thought which arises out of the human being's own head. That thought was intended only to serve the combination of the phenomena. Goethe was searching for the Ur-phenomenon, not the law of nature. That is what is so special about him. So if we take the pure phenomenon the Ur-phenomenon, on its own, we then have externally 
something which enables us to feel the unfolding of our will as we observe the external world. And then we shall be able to rise up once again to something which is objective and subjective, such as is described, for example, in ancient Hebrew teachings. We should learn to stop speaking only about the antithesis of physical and spiritual. We must instead recognize in our sense perceptions the interplay between the physical and the spiritual as a union. We will experience today what was present in the Yahweh culture three millennia ago, when we cease to see something material in nature and also when we cease to conceive of some sort of fantasy soul in nature, as did, for example, Gustav Theodor Fechner. When we receive in relation to nature the soul element combined with the sense perception, then shall we have a Christ-filled relationship with external nature. And then this Christ-filled relationship with external nature will become something akin to a spiritual breathing process. We can gain support in this by realizing ever more clearly, on the basis of our sound common sense, that pre-existence is something which lies at the foundation of our life of soul. So we must regard the purely egoistic idea of a post-existence, for it is purely egoistic, since it arises from the longing to survive after death, we must complement this egoistic concept of a post-existence with the knowledge of the pre-existence of the soul. We must make a new kind of effort to reach the view that the soul is indeed eternal. It is this which we can describe as the Michael culture. When we make our way through the world with an awareness that together with everything we see, everything we hear, there is soul and there is spirit, flowing into us, and with the awareness that at the same time soul is flowing from us out into the world, then we shall have gained the awareness needed by humankind for the future. Let me return once more to that picture. You see a flame. You close your eyes and see an after-image which fades. Is this nothing more than a subjective process? Physiologists today say it is. But this is not true. In the world ether, it signifies an objective process, just as in the air, the presence of the carbon dioxide you exhale signifies an objective process. You imprint on the world ether the image you experience solely as a fading afterimage. This is not only subjective, it is also an objective process. Here you have what is objective. You have the possibility of recognizing how something taking place within you is in a subtle way also a world process. When you become conscious of the fact, I see a flame, I close my eyes, I see it fade. Of course, it also fades when your eyes are open, only you don't notice this. 
And this is something which takes place not only within you, but also in the world outside. This is the case not only with a flame. If I meet someone and claim that what he has just said is true or untrue, this is a judgment, a moral or intellectual action within me. Just like the flame, it gradually fades. And this too is an objective world process. If you think well of a fellow human being, this too fades and becomes an objective process in the world ether. If you think ill of him, this also fades as an objective process. You cannot lock away in your secret chamber what you perceive or judge about the world. You seem to be doing it privately for yourself, but it is at the same time an objective world process. Just as the third age knew that the breathing process is both something taking place within the human being and at the same time an objective process, so must humanity in the future become aware that the sole process about which I have been speaking is also an objective world process. This change of consciousness is something which calls for greater strength in the human being's mood of soul, greater than that to which we are accustomed nowadays. It is what is meant by taking in the Michael culture, permeating oneself with this consciousness. If you take light as the general representative of sense perception, we must make the effort of thinking about light as being filled with soul, just as it was a matter of course for people in the second and third pre-Christian millennia to think in this way, for light was indeed filled with soul. We must thoroughly break the habit of seeing in light only what our materialistic age is in the habit of seeing in it. We must thoroughly break the habit of believing that the sun merely emits those rays about which our physics and human consciousness in general are in the habit of speaking. We must come to realize that soul is penetrating space on the vibrations of light. And at the same time, we must realize that this was not the case in the age which preceded our own. In the age preceding our own, what reached humanity through air was that which now reaches humanity through light. You see, this is an objective difference in the earth's process. So thinking on the larger scale, we can say air-soul process, light-soul process. See plate 11. This is approximately what we can observe in the evolution of the earth. And in the middle between the two stands the mystery of Golgotha signifying the transition from the one to the other. Both for the present and for the future of humanity, it will be insufficient merely to fantasize about the spirit in abstractions or fall into some kind of nebulous pantheism. What matters is to take what today's humanity experiences as merely some kind of physical process and begin to see that there is a soul element within it. It is important that we now learn to say 
There was a time before the mystery of Golgotha when the earth had an atmosphere, and in that atmosphere there was the soul which was related to the soul element of the human being. Now the earth has an atmosphere, but it is devoid of a soul element related to the human soul. Instead, the same soul element which was previously in the air has entered into the light. And this became possible because the Christ united himself with the earth. Thus, both air and light have been transformed in their spirit and soul element during the course of earthly evolution. It is silly to describe air and light purely materialistically, in the same way throughout the millennia in which the earth's evolution has been taking place. Both air and light have changed inwardly. We live now in an atmosphere and in a light environment, both of which have changed since our souls lived on the earth in former incarnations. Learning to recognize what is externally material as something which is of the soul and spirit is what is important now. Spiritual science will not be correct if people describe what is purely a physical existence on the one hand and then add, like a decoration, that, by the way, oh yes, in this physical matter there is also something spiritual. People are peculiar nowadays in this respect. All they want is to withdraw into abstractions in such matters. Yet what is necessary instead is that they should in future not make an abstract distinction between what is physical and what is spiritual. They should seek the spiritual itself within the physical in order to recognize that what is spiritual is also the transition into the physical, into the way it works in the physical. When we are able to understand this, we shall be able to reach an understanding of the human being. Quote, blood is a very special fluid, close quote. But what is talked of today in physiology is not a very special fluid, but merely a substance one seeks to analyze chemically, as is done with any other. There is nothing special about it. However, when we reach the starting point of being able to comprehend rightly the metamorphosis of air and light in the soul, then we shall gradually be able to advance to comprehending the human being himself as having spirit and soul in all his parts. No longer shall we have abstract physical matter and abstract spirit. For spirit, soul, and body will be seen as working within one another. That will be the culture of Micaiah. It is for this that our age is calling. It is something which must be grasped with every fiber of human soul life by those who wish to comprehend our present time. For a long while there has been resistance to everything seemingly unusual being included in our view of the world. I have frequently quoted a droll example relating to something rather rough and ready. In 1835, not even a century ago, when the first railway line was about to be built from Fürth to Nuremberg, 
the learned faculty of medicine in Bavaria, were asked whether such a thing would be healthy. The medical faculty declared, the document exists, this is no fairy tale, that the railway line should not be built since it would make people nervous to travel across the face of the earth in that way. And they added that if certain individuals insisted on the building of railways, then high wooden fences should be erected on either side of the line to prevent passers-by from being concussed. So you see, passing judgments of this kind is one thing, but another thing is the evolutionary advancement of humanity. Today we smile at such a document, such as that issued by the Bavarian Medical Faculty in 1835, but have we any right to smile? Are we not faced with the very same reaction today? After all, the Bavarian medical faculty were not entirely wrong. If we compare the nervous condition of people today with that of 200 years ago, we do see that they are now more nervous. Perhaps the faculty were exaggerating somewhat, but people are indeed more nervous nowadays. However, humanity's onward development is not a matter of things like this, but rather one of ensuring that certain impulses which want to enter earthly development are indeed able to do so and are not rebuffed. It is easy to be complacent about what wants to enter human cultural development from time to time. One must not decide what is our duty with regard to human cultural evolution on the basis of complacency or even on the basis of an elevated form of complacency. I shall close today with these words because it is evident from all directions that an increasing battle will have to be fought between anthroposophical knowledge on the one hand and a variety of beliefs on the other. These beliefs which want to continue on their own path and which have no wish to reach a new understanding of the mystery of Golgotha will adhere ever more strongly to the battle lines they have already drawn up and we would be very reckless indeed if we did not take account of the battle ahead. You see, of course, that I am not at all keen on fighting a battle, especially not one with the Catholic Church. It appears, though, that a battle of this kind is about to be foisted upon us. Someone who is familiar with the more profound historical impulses lying behind the modern beliefs will be most unwilling to do battle against something so venerable. But if a battle is being foisted upon one, then it cannot be avoided. And today's priesthood is utterly disinclined to open the door to that which must be granted entrance, namely matters of spiritual science. We can see that the necessary battle against the attitudes I read out to you the other day is actually grotesque, since articles written against me state that the reader ought to inform himself about anthroposophical spiritual science, even though my own writings have been forbidden to Catholics by the Pope. This is not laughable. It is profoundly serious. A battle which comes about in this grotesque manner, by broadcasting judgments of this kind, cannot be taken lightly 
and it can especially not be taken lightly if one is not at all keen to fight it. Take the example of the Catholic Church, and the Protestant Church is no different either, only the former is more powerful and its traditions are more venerable. One need only look at what the priest wears when he says Mass, at every item of his apparel, and one need only understand every ancient, holy, and venerable act performed during the Mass. These are things which are more ancient even than Christianity, for the sacrifice of the Mass is nothing other than a Christian version of an even more ancient mystery cultus. All this envelops the priests who want to take up cudgels in this way. So when one has on the one hand the deepest veneration both for the cultus and for its symbolism, while seeing on the other hand the dreadful means employed in their defense and the dreadful means used to attack which should now enter into human evolution, it becomes clear how necessary it is to take a stance in these matters. This is most truly something which must be seriously studied and comprehended. Yet what we have come up against thus far is merely a beginning. Now is not the time to sleep through such things. Now is the time for wide-open eyes. Thus far, throughout the two decades, during which the anthroposophical movement has been making its way in Central Europe, it has been possible for us to tolerate the sleepy sectarianism which has been so difficult to combat in our own ranks, and which is still deeply entrenched in the souls of those who are involved in this movement. But it is now too late to continue with such sleepy sectarianism. What I have often emphasized here is profoundly true, namely that it is now necessary for us to focus clearly on how significant the anthroposophical movement is for world history, and while ignoring trivialities, how important it is to recognize the importance even of small impulses. In this respect, recognizing the importance even of small impulses, my dear friends, one must also exemplify everyday matters. One cannot get to the bottom of things if one does not look at the example of everyday matters. We would be taking things too lightly if we did not look thoroughly into the everyday. In recent weeks I have so often emphasized that it is absolutely necessary for someone seriously seeking to discover what is needed anthroposophically for a new view of the world, that he should take seriously the matter of representing the truth even in everyday life. Anyone can remain silent about things and keep as much to himself as he wishes, but if he does say something, he must strive to ensure that what he puts into words is in keeping with what is going on. I can still hear myself, scarcely more than a fortnight ago, emphasizing the importance of being truthful also outwardly. And yet so much of this kind has again come toward me within our own movement over the last fortnight. I am only mentioning this now because it is truly grotesque. Last Thursday, at short notice, I had to give a lecture to the teachers in Basel. This was quite simply an ordinary fact. I was to give a lecture to the Basel teachers. 
someone else who is present here at this moment, heard on that day that the plan was for me to repeat that lecture again on the following Saturday, which would have been yesterday. I was to repeat the same lecture. I heard about this, but there was absolutely no truth in it. And yet somebody drew the conclusion that I would, after all, not be doing it because it would clash with a synod and therefore the attendance would not be adequate. There was no reason why such a rumor should arise since no one had any intention of arranging anything. I am mentioning this as an example of what is said here and there day after day in our circles, namely that something is going to take place when it is not. When you look into it, there is absolutely nothing there, and yet such rumors are put about. My dear friends, my advice to be entirely serious with respect to the truth is not expressed merely as something with which to fill the empty air. The advice is given because it is a fact that for the sake of the right attitude of soul in anthroposophical work, it is essential to be absolutely accurate in external matters. What one says must be in keeping with even the most external matters of everyday life. Such things really must be taken seriously, even if they appear to be of minor importance. The end of Lecture 6